Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Tim Houlihan. And I'm Kurt Nelson. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. So that felt a little backwards. I know. (laughs) So I usually start off and you usually come in after me. Well, I wanted to change things up just maybe to get out of our rut, if nothing else. And change it up we did. People, (laughs) listeners are going, I don't see much change. But for me, I don't know. I think this is uh, an experiment in the status quo bias. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, And how doing something different might feel a little difficult or uncomfortable from time to time. It did feel uncomfortable. It's weird. I mean, switching yeah. that up, not a big deal, but it did. It felt felt a little bit uncomfortable, didn't it? I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Out, uh, out of sync. Yeah. So our guest today, talking about uncomfortable, she, she did something different as well. And I think probably a little bit bigger than changing up who talks first on a podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. um, but I think she was a little bit uh, uncomfortable with this change at first, maybe even longer than that. I'd say she'd probably agree with that. She basically turned her back on what we typically think of as the American dream, one that she had fully bought into. Luckily for us, she wrote about that experience. And our guest today is Manisha Takor. She's the author of a new book, Money Zen, Escape the Cult of Never Enough and Reclaim Your Life. Now, this book, as well as our conversation, focuses on the challenges that go along with the hedonic treadmill and our evolutionarily based desire to consume. Yeah, it's really a a look at that status quo and how we can break out of it. And it was a really good conversation. So I think Manisha shared a fresh perspective I'm excited for Groovers to get into. It's a message that possibly that only first generation immigrants uh, to the United States can fully express in a way that she had it. But I think it, it's it's across the board. We we tend to fall into this this piece. Yeah, I I think you're right. And Manisha has, by conventional standards, already achieved the American dream. She's laid claim to a well paid job and a fine place to live. But she discovered that it really didn't bring her all the happiness that she had hoped for. In striving for this financial and material success, she handed over much of her life to a dream that ultimately became a nightmare. She became a workaholic and discovered that the busy badge just wasn't working for her. Ah, the busy badge. Mm. (laughs) Our conversation, however, is not a pity party, but rather a discussion of how to avoid the materialistic snares of the 21st century life and how to pay attention to the hungry ghost. Ah, the hungry ghost. That's such a great, wonderful Buddhist metaphor, which, by the way, represents our inability to ever satisfy our worldly desires. And to get back to the busy badge, we're going to discuss how adjustments in your mindset can help you downplay your desire to earn the busy badge. And frankly, it really shouldn't hold much meaning in our life. Agreed. So, Groovers, we hope you'll take a break from your hedonic treadmill. Sit down. Relax a little bit with a new world mindset brew and enjoy our conversation with Manisha Takor. Manisha Takor, welcome to Behavioral Groups. Tim and Kurt, it is fantastic to be here. (laughs) That's the best greeting that we've ever had, honestly. Okay, so let's get started with a speed round. Manisha, would you rather learn a new language or learn to play a new musical instrument? Musical instrument. 
Ooh, you, you, smart answer given that Tim asked that question. So there, yeah. good, good, good job there. <laughs> and you're doing both right now, aren't you? Actually, you're. I am. I am. Uh, but one is not going as well. And that's no. musical instrument. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So are you more likely to be a workaholic if you work long hours or if you think about work all of the time? Thinking about work all of the time by far and away. Yeah, good. That that we're going to come back to that. This should be a really simple one. Does self worth equal net worth? Well, in my head, it did for thirty years, and that was a royal disaster. Um, I highly recommend that if it does in your head that you try and expunge it. That's what uh, that's what my work is about right now. And we'll 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 go into that in some depth, I believe. And the last question again getting on this whole element of workaholics and various different pieces that we'll talk about in more depth, but are workaholics more or less productive than non-workaholics? Oh, without a doubt, so much less, uh, not only less productive, <laughs> but less creative. Yeah. Less happy, less everything. Yeah. <laughs> You're, we're less not going to paint a good picture I was going to say, if, 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 if you're listening right now and you count yourself as a workaholic, you're not going to be painted in a good light today. Let's just let's just start that. Um, well, you know, but, and, but you've and got, just, just one yeah. thing, uh, if I can just say this, one of the things people have said to me over the years is, you know, you really need to go to Workaholics Anonymous. And I'm like, uh, are you kidding me? Like, no self-respecting workaholic would have time to go to Workaholics Anonymous. Um, so who am I going to find there? How are they going to help me? Um, well, and, and yeah, if you're listening to this podcast on like 1.5 times as you're doing some <laughs> other thing, just to make sure that you're keeping on touch, you might just want to consider, yeah. all right, why am I trying to do and get all this in? So as we start there, so um, we're talking uh, with you today about your new book, Money Zen, Escape the Cult of Never Enough and Reclaim Your Life. And so with that, there's a couple things I just wanted to clarify before we begin um, that you have a couple very cool terms in here. Um, one is called earning your busy badge and the other is the cult of never enough. Can you kind of just start by giving a terminology of what both of those mean for you? Yeah. So this notion of busy badge came to me when I observed how we started to greet each other. And just in, in context, I'm, I'm 53 years old and you know, I mean, I kind of think back to when I was a kiddo and, and, you know, we would ask, you know, how you doing? And, and you'd answer with, you know, what you were doing, um, <laughs> which was usually something fun. And then as we got older, it was, I'm busy. And then, you know, how are you busy? Then it's so busy. And then it's, oh God, I'm crazy busy. <laughs> and it became like this oh, sign yeah. of um, pride almost. And, um and honor and you'd almost feel embarrassed to tell someone like oh yeah i'm i'm doing great i i just decided to watch the entire four seasons of succession all over again oh and listen <laughs> yeah. to the you today. know hbo after pot today exactly i haven't gotten off the sofa i'm still in my pajamas i'm doing great I mean, no one says that and so that's where the busy badge comes into play is what's caused us to feel so proud of of being busy and what drives us to be so busy. And then the cult of never enough is what has caused us 
as a society to, in many respects, encourage us to believe that the answer to almost anything that ails us is more. Mm, Yeah. One of the things when I was reading your book about, and you talked about the cult of never enough that kind of came into my mind was just this idea that how much of that cult is kind of driven by the social comparison. It's, it's the, Oh, I, I've got this, but now I look over and I'm going, Oh, but you know, the Joneses over there, I got the new Range Rover, but they got the bigger version of the Range Rover. Or I got the house in Telluride, but they got the house in Aspen and and the beach house in Hawaii uh, and all of those types of things. And again, we're talking, these are really high end, really productive people. But even I think at a lower level, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I have a Hyundai versus a, a Honda Accord. What what are the different types? Of, is, is anything from your perspective about the social comparison uh, aspect of that? Oh, without a doubt. I like to say that there are really four root factors from kind of a behavioral standpoint, if you will, that lead up into a never enough culture. And each one is quite meaty. There's personal, cultural, societal, and um, evolutionary, biological. And you really hit the nail on the head with the societal. And I think you, you can break the societal into to two parts. So let me say what the two parts are, and I'll address one. And then um, if you'd like, we can go into the other. So the, the, the first one, which enables it, is the increasingly quote, easy access to credit over the last 40 to 50 years, which Mm -hmm. enables people to live beyond their means combined with a systematic lack of personal finance education anywhere, which means you're basically given a blank check and a bazooka to shoot yourself, a financial bazooka to shoot yourself in, in the foot with. Wow. Yeah. So we, yeah. we can come back to, to that. That's the, that's the foundation that amplifies what you're talking about, which is that historically we used to compare ourselves horizontally to the Joneses next door. And I can remember a show called lifestyles of the rich and famous and you know it would come on once a week and we'd watch it never occurred to any of us that we would ever be like the lifestyle of we'd we'd live like those people i mean that was like a separate group (laughs) and because in so many ways easy access to credit has enabled us to live kind of one step beyond where we are financially Social images have given us, uh, media images have given us what I call um, kind of false comparisons. So to give you an example, if you were to take a look at pretty much any, let's just pick a TV show. And I love royal gossip um, from the, the UK royal family. So we'll take the show Suits that Meghan Markle was on. And if, if you look at that show, it it it's based on a law firm, and there are a number of paralegals in there who are dressed to the nines. And as a woman, I can tell you, they clearly have custom-tailored clothes. 
um, of most exquisite fabrics because they never wrinkle, even though the show <laughs> is in a high humidity city. They have blowouts every single morning because there's no frizz in their hair. Again, in a high humidity city. They have fresh mani-pedis because they're on their computers all day, but their nails are never chipped. And then when you go look at their apartments, I'm like, oh, my God. When I kind of did a back-of-the-envelope calculation to see how much money you'd have to earn to dress and groom and go out to cocktails at the level they do, you'd have to earn at least, at least 30% more than those jobs pay. Yeah. So we have those media images, and then it's exacerbated exacerbated by what we see in social media. So, you know, from that standpoint of what we see from each other, um, there's a lot of comparison um, that is unrealistic that we are looking at. I want to go back. I I think that that's fascinating. And, uh, of course, on one level, it makes sense, right, that that. Today, we can just kind of almost accept the idea that these aspirations, this lifestyle, the rich and famous is now aspirational, whereas 30 years ago, it wasn't aspirational. No one was aspiring to that because it just seemed so so far beyond. But today, there does seem to be sort of a sense of, I'm not sure what it is, what that sense is, but achievability, like I can become an internet you know, influencer just by having some clever TikToks. Or, or or whatever it is, I'm not I'm not exactly sure where people get these ideas, but it is is fascinating. I wanted to go back to the earning the easy, the busy batch. I love how I think it's a really clever observation that you made of what it was like to be asked, "What are you doing?" And as a child, we might even say, "Nothing. I'm not doing anything," and that was a perfectly acceptable answer. What? When did, what happened? Have you, I mean, in your, your view of this, when did that start to change? It's a couple of different pieces, but I I think in one respect, as corporations, as we shifted from a society where we had more community focus, so, you know, Growing up, I can remember, I am ai would call myself a spiritual person rather than an organized re- religious person. But, the, you know, there were churches in the town I grew up that, you know, were doing all kinds of, you know, not just Sunday services, but all kinds of activities. There were volunteer groups. There were, you know, brownie, really active brownie troops and Boy Scout troops. And um, there were all kinds of affinity groups. and um, uh, there people had a sense of identity and community that was outside of their workplace. Mm. It was like work. And then there was the rest of your life. And I really think what happened was um, to a large part, I mean, there are many things that come into this, but one of it is as the internet started sweeping in and we started to have this infiltration into the cracks of our lives of access to work during non-work periods. And I, I can remember when the very earliest Blackberries came out and in 
you know, consulting, finance, the legal world. It was like a real kind of sign of honor if you had a, like you were important if you had a BlackBerry. Um, and the early cell phones came and they were like as big as a yep. brick. And um, I can remember on one business trip to London um, back before cell phones, where I literally had to go into those red um, British old-fashioned telephone booths if I wanted to like confirm a meeting or call and tell someone that I was late stuck in traffic or something because there are no cell phones and you know and then we stepped in into this completely different world where pings and dings are with us 24 7 and so I think it's when that line got crossed and the corporate culture um uh, it, it I don't I encouraged it didn't stop it you know nine to five used to be considered a completely honorable and full <laughs> out giving of yourself yeah. to your career yeah. yeah um and now that's not yeah Manisha that's a great I love that um example because I remember very vividly I was doing a program with a number of different high-level executives. Um, we were down in Augusta, Georgia. It was for the masters. We had this meeting planned before the masters were there, right? And this was still at the age where Blackberries had just come out. It had cell phones, you know, they were there, but Blackberries were just there. And these guys had these Blackberries. And we had designed this meeting because we knew they were senior VPs and, and presidents of these companies. And we made a half hour break between, you know, like every hour we had a half hour because we knew they had to get back and talk, but they were on their phones and and they were, you know, texting and doing all these things while we're doing this other big conference. And then one gentleman just talked about his BlackBerry and he said, I have the ability to go out on my sailboat and still be working. And, and, and at the point he was really proud of this. And at the point I felt it was like this pit in my stomach that I go, why would you want to be working when you're out? So you're not getting a, you're not working very well, but B, you're not, you're not enjoying the sailboat. It's like you, you lose the value of both. And I just, it just struck me really, um, at a gut level at that point. And I remember that. And I kind of have over the years though, I've, become that person right that's like oh you go on vacation and you have your all your stuff with you and you're doing all this thing so anyway i i fully um just uh, love that example because i think it's so true as to to part of the reason why this has happened well and i i feel like i didn't knit together the the two thoughts very well it's so like we we used to have community and things outside of work and then as the the technology came in it brought our work home and pushed out that community. And then work started to fill in the role of that community. Um, And, you know, there's that wonderful book, Bowling Alone, um, and it talks, it, it, it really addresses this. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is a woman I know not terribly well, but she had a 60th birthday party. And so she invited her 60 closest friends. And it blew my mind because I don't have 60 (laughs) friends. Because what I've noticed is I'm very close to whoever I'm working with at that time. And then when I switch companies, I tend to stay in touch for about 18 months 
And then you form a new cluster with the new people. They become your new work family. And your relationship with your prior work family becomes via LinkedIn and hitting likes uh, and and that's it. And you move on. And there's not that kind of continuity even in friendships. That's, that, that actually is a, is a great, uh, a great wrap up uh, to that idea. And it is a complicated issue and one that we're not going to easily undo. Uh, to kind of add to that, you wrote that as you sort of discovered that you had really become an alcoholic. A workaholic. Or, or, excuse me, workaholic. <laughs> Pardon me, Freudian dress. There's not, uh, honestly, the, the, it's very, very close. Yeah. Well, when you discover that you have become a workaholic, you're actually doing something that you love. Uh, You were really enjoying the work that you were doing. So kind of getting into this idea of of the work pushing out and and uh, and sort of eliminating some of the other social things that work ends up becoming more important. To what degree do you think we're just putting too much identity into the what I do is who I am? So there are levels to that. I mean, I I think we all know that it's comical, right? That when you meet someone new, question one, two, or three will inevitably be what you do Mm -hmm. in America. I'm currently obsessed with the Scandinavian countries. I just got back from a a trip to Copenhagen. No one asks you Mm -hmm. that. I also, there have been several studies um, where, you know, people will be instructed to do a, a series of, of uh, dinner parties and they're not allowed for the first 90 minutes to just ask that question. And, and then they have to report back, you know, like, how does it feel? And, and people find it extremely awkward to make small talk <laughs> and get the conversation going without being able to use work as that sort of foundation um, and so uh, one of the things, you know, so it's it's become, in many ways, work has become part of who we are because we live in a society that tends to value success and defines success based on productivity, contribution, but then measures productivity and contribution in dollars not based on your character, your contribution to society overall, your raw creativity, the way in which you interact in small ways with other humans and the ecology around you. And so there's a values piece to it. But I mean, I think that, you know, people will ask me, what's the difference between I love my work and I'm a workaholic. And mm. I mean, there are various researchers who who have, have studied this extensively. And um, for instance, Dr. Melissa Clark at University of Georgia. And what she found were really the defining traits between someone who um, has crossed the line from I love my work to I'm a workaholic is that a workaholic feels compelled to work because of these internal pressures. It's, it's, Mm. it's compelled. It's not enjoying compelled having persistent thoughts about work when not working and working what is beyond reasonably expected um, of the worker based on the established requirements of the job or the basic economic needs of the person, despite 
the potential for negative consequences on your health, your relationships, etc. Et and so in, in my case, I started off liking my work, but at some point it I became I became my work mm. and I became what my work led to, which was my net worth. It all just kind of got blended together. Yeah. You tell a great story in there about going home for Christmas and, you know, spending 30 minutes in the car ride telling your parents about how much your bonus was, because you can't talk about that with your other people. But, you know, that was the big piece. And, you know, to all degrees, you kind of, you know, uh, you talk about the story about how you went through this transformation that you basically lived the American, you chased the American dream, right? That, that dream of, of success and wealth as it was. Um, but at some point it turned out to be a nightmare. And so wh where did you, where did you come to that realization? And then what did that, how did that impact you? Uh, if you want to share a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I've been observing um, in many different venues, um, from academic papers to more anecdotal reports from, say, podcasters who interview Fortune 500 executives, elite athletes, elite architects, and um, other folks at the top of their career, is that 70% of them seem to be driven by some inner childhood demon. Mm. And so I want to address that because it can sound like, you know, lollipops and roses chasing after the American dream. But my research in the book and my personal experience has been that's not what starts it. What starts it is typically a what psychologists would refer to as a small T trauma that happens before age 25 when your brain is fully formed. You know, in, in my case, um, I grew up in a small town in Indiana. I'm mixed race. I um, was a fat, chubby kid with psoriasis, which is a skin condition that leaves you with scaly patches. Mine were very visible on my elbows and my knees and in my scalp. So I was like a walking, you know, commercial for head and shoulders. And I had Coke bottle glasses. And, you know, Indian women tend to have often hair on their upper lip, but my mom is American and um, she had no idea what to do with that. And, you know, Indian dads don't know what to do with that, you know, and, and so in India, you know what to do with it. You go get it threaded. And so, and there were no threading places in, you know, <laughs> I, I think there were like two Indian families. So, you know, I walked around and like people would like, you know, call me like mustache mouth yeah. and cow butt. And, you know, I mean, it got to the point in my, when I was in sixth grade, um, the kids were so mean um, I didn't want to go into the cafeteria at lunchtime and face the, you know, verbal bullying wow. that I literally walked home and sat under, both my parents worked. My mom was a teacher though, and she got home by the time I was home. So I didn't have a, a, a key to the house. I sat under the picnic table every lunch hour, my sixth grade year. Oh. Um, and so what drove me was to earn enough money that I would never be put in a position where I had to sit under the picnic table again. And I mean, mm, listen, I'm wow. 53 and my voice is still cracking up. 
as I talk about that. And so when you see somebody engage in this, it's really easy to judge and think, oh, that person's greedy. Oh, they're just chasing after money. But oftentimes there's a story behind that of, you know, of, of pain. And that's what's driving and everybody's story of pain is different. And what's fascinating to me is these stories of pain do not have to be huge stories of trauma, you know, um, you know, later in my life, I lost weight. I learned about threading, you know, the braces got taken off and, um, you know, circumstances change, but those memories stick in your head. And so I really want to just highlight that because I think it can be simplistic to say chasing after the American dream without a discussion of why. What are the personal reasons that led you to do that? Well, and and that makes me just wonder to what degree uh, was um, ethnicity and uh, being a minority girl, minority woman, uh, and and then gender, you know, both of these, uh, to what degree did these two things factor into your your story how how central do you think they are and and can they be generalized do you think that that's it's more than certainly it's more than just you right well you know so this is the really interesting thing tim is that um yeah i mean a classic you know a, a classic second generation immigrant story is is mine there are bajillion ones like mine but you know as we talk as I mentioned before, the TV show Succession um, has just come to an end. And there in that show, we've got an example of some very white, very privileged, very wealthy individuals chasing after money and power because they're trying to please a daddy who never gave them love and support and a mother who is completely absent. So that was their small t trauma that kept them chasing after this American dream long beyond, you know, they they didn't need it for money, but they were chasing after the money because they were chasing after the love and the approval. So I think um, the important thing is that it's if you are struggling with a never enough mindset, which is really what this is about. Um, workaholism is is a oftentimes um, the most obvious um, external manifestation of a never enough mindset. But if you are struggling with it, one of the foundational components may likely be a small T trauma in your past. And if you don't address that, it doesn't matter how much you know about easy access to credit and unrealistic social um, images, until you make peace with that and look at it, it, you're not going to be able, I was not able to move forward until I looked at that and was able to just, I mean, I can't change it, but yeah. accept it, make yeah. peace, move on. I love that first off. Um, but then also in the book, you talk about money Zen and you talk about it. And I think this was really witty is you said it was financial health plus emotional wealth. And I loved how you kind of transpose those two that typically we think of financial wealth and emotional health, but you transpose those two. And I think that lies right in with what you're talking about here. It's that element that we, we have, uh, we, we have to be thinking about, you know, finances, not just from, 
um, the wealth aspect, but from a health piece of that. And then the emotional side really kind of drives some of that and what we can do. So can you expand on that idea of emotional um, wealth and financial health? Sure. Um, Let me start big picture and say there's a study that probably most listeners have heard of. It's been around for a long time, quoted a lot, that $75,000 is the limit. Any money that we earn after $75,000 is not going to increase our happiness. And a lot of people roll our eyes at that and say, well, that study's wrong. Well, it is wrong. Some researchers um, from Penn and Princeton have uh, just put out some very compelling data that hits it head on. But it's not wrong for the reason you might think. It's wrong because incremental earnings over that amount do not increase life satisfaction if it comes in the absence of a base of emotional well-being. More money when you do not have emotional wealth to build and use it off of doesn't make you happier. And so that really gets to the essence of what I'm talking about with financial health and emotional wealth at the biggest level. Now, I'm not, I, I wish this book could address every um, issue. I mean, I think we have to, to, to say there is a wide swath of Americans who we lack social safety nets. They're working three jobs and barely making it. And what I'm talking about is not going to solve that problem. That's a whole nother book. And there are many people much more qualified than me to address that. So the comments I'm about to make speak to anyone making a living wage, which is not nearly enough people. But if you are making a living wage and beyond, the concept of financial health is um, this notion that um, actually goes back to agrarian times of kind of competence where you, you have enough to meet your needs, to be prepared for an emergency to live a life that makes you happy, to not be stressed about money. Um, Money stress is a huge um, cause of health issues. So we strive after more, 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 more. But what we really need is education, financial, universal, personal finance education to teach us what are the basic steps to achieve financial health, which will include a very um, ample dose of explaining um, what are reasonable standards for lifestyles at at various different income levels, which will help avoid a lot of the other problems we are talking about. And then showing people, um, helping people understand why an investment in all the different rainbow of things that encompass emotional wealth will generate a much higher return on investment than continuing to plow um, your time and effort into generating more financial wealth. And that, I think, is the piece that's missing, Mm -hmm. is we just keep hammering home on financial wealth, financial wealth, financial wealth, instead of financial health, build emotional wealth. Then if you want to go back to uh, do some more with financial wealth, great. But but that's where the concept comes from. Well, I love that. It seems like we need to be changing the measures then as well, because I, I think about like what, what's a, what's a measure of, of financial well being uh, is a credit score. Credit score has nothing to do with your emotional wealth. 
Right now, a credit score has nothing to do with how good of a parent you are or whether you decided to um, to not work full time in order to take care of your kids. There's there's nothing uh, in in a in, in that particular measure that reflects anything beyond just a, a very specific financial, you know, sort of straight line. Uh, so maybe, you know, it, se- it seems like part of that solution might include measuring things differently or actually measuring different things. Oh, Tim, you've brought up a really important point. This is how sick our society is. Many people think a good credit score is. I mean, that's what's touted as, you know, the the reputation. It's, um, you know, the blood pressure. You know, if your blood pressure is low, you're in good health. If your credit score is high, right. you're in good financial shape. Do you know if you have no debt, no revolving debt, you've paid off your mortgage, you've paid off your car, you don't use credit cards, your credit score is going to be super low because you yeah. don't have <laughs> right. any credit history to report. So now, because you don't have any debt, you got a stinky credit score. So you look mm-hmm. like a financial deadbeat. So, I mean, how sick is that? That the the system is incenting us it is. to have debt. So you're right. We need new metrics. Yeah. I find that really interesting. I remember that from... My first job out of um, college was working for ITT Consumer Finance, and we were the lender of last resort. And so we would give $200 loans to people in various different pieces, oftentimes because not that they were bad, but they could they didn't have any debt out there and they couldn't get a loan from their bank or do anything. And so we were the people that they had to come to because we would offer that because we offered extremely high interest rates that, oh. you know, were is just crazy. So I, again, I, I, I find that really interesting. One of the things as I was reading your book um, and in this conversation too, that, that kind of just stuck me, stuck with me was this idea that, you know, some of what you're talking about is almost like a stoic kind of um, thing. So Epictetus uh, talked about wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants, right? And so it's this uh, idea of, not wanting more, you know, Marcus Aurelius said, don't set your mind on things that you don't possess as a, as if they were yours, but count the blessings you actually possess and think how much you would desire them if they weren't already yours. This idea of, of, all right, just think of the, what you have and think about if I was not at that level, how much I would desire those, but we don't, we, we have the hedonic treadmill as Tim can talk about this idea. We get something and then all of a sudden we become accustomed to it. And now we, we want more. We want more. We want more. It's that the, the cult of never enough. Um, how much of what you're seeing, and I don't know if you know anything around stoicism or anything, but how does the, does that relate to kind of what you're talking about in this book? Oh, it's, it's very much there's a, a layer of stoicism. There's a layer of, you know, Buddhism and the hungry ghost. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, it's this it's the, it's this notion that. I would argue that, um, and again, this is right in line with the Stoics, that we need, we need to flip this, the script mm-hmm. that, again, we think our answer is more. We think the answer is uh, do more, have more, achieve more, be more, whereas most of the time the answer is actually found in less when you are stressed unhappy, uh, feeling lonely, feeling disconnected from life, from a 
bigger purpose from others, generally, you will have much greater success in solving those problems by doing less, shedding commitments, shedding possessions, being still in nature. And that is not a message that we get in in mm. modern day society. But, you know, if if you want to go pick up any one of Ryan Holiday's books, go through the Daily Stoic <laughs> and uh, in bite-sized pieces over the next 365 days, start dipping your toe into the waters. You will learn exactly this. Um, and so they go very much hand in hand. Yeah. You mentioned the hungry ghost. Uh, we, we can't have a discussion that um, doesn't include the hungry ghost. Can you tell listeners about the importance of the hungry ghost? Yeah. So, you know, it's this, it's this Buddhist concept and I, I will not do it um, justice. People need to um, Google Pema Chodron and, and the hungry ghost because she, whew, um, there are numerous clips of her just talking about it beautifully but basically it's this this you know notion that there are these for lack of a better term we'll I'll, I'll call them we'll, I'll simplify and use the term goats with these really really tiny throats and no matter how much you put in you can never fill them the bellies because the, the throats are so tiny and that's that's what what we are like as humans like we just that we'll never be able you can just never fill us up there's there's never there's never enough and so the this concept of trying to fill the unfillable is one and i think what i want to emphasize is it's one that has been around for so many years it is not new i mean the hungry ghost it makes me realize i need to go back and and look when when it first popped up in the spiritual lexicon, but it's it's not new. Yet the ability, the the sheer volume of stuff that we're now trying to shove down that narrow passageway has increased geometrically. <laughs> um, it's clogged, yeah. and um, there is not enough Drano to help. And so it's just it, it it's just gotten so much worse. And so. Um, again, what is the answer? Less. Yeah. I have to ask when it comes to less, what would it be like to be stranded on a desert island with two musical artist catalogs? You can only choose two. This is in the world of less is more. You, you can get everything that this artist has ever created. You get their whole catalog. But what two artists do you take with you? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> okay. Vivaldi for the morning, oh. and then I would have Lionel Hampton for the evening. <laughs> I gotta love that. I, 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 that is pretty, uh, pretty straightforward and pretty specific. Um, yeah, you said that you're kind of a lover of Baroque and classical music. How did you, how did that happen in your life? Um, I, uh, have always, uh, been a very anxious person. Um, and this is not something I, I, I really go into in, in the book at all because I kind of blurs lines. But 
later on in, in life, I was um, finally diagnosed with bipolar 2. One of maybe my next book will be about our mental health system and how horrible we are at properly diagnosing um, yeah. people. What I found was if I woke up in the morning and put on classical music, it would soothe my amygdala and my nervous system. Oh. And, you know, back in the day, I would listen to it on my Walkman and, you know, in the era of Bluetooth, <laughs> I would put it on. And it, it, classical music soothes me when I am anxious as my day starts. And well, um, well. that's how, and I, I happened to, find that Baroque music, and in particular, anything with a harpsichord, um, would very much recenter me. Interesting. Um, and then when I was able to listen to that in nature, that was like, whoo, you know, better than um, any type of pharmaceutical intervention. Well, then where does a jazz vibraphonist, Lionel Hampton, come into this? How I mean, his stuff is, oh, so, is very cool and very chill. Is, is that the part that's appealing? Yeah, so I feel like the um, the kind of more harpsichord sounds are the the, the soothing to enter into the day, um, and the 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 tingy sounds of the sort of celebratory sounds of the vibraphone are sort of the uh, you made it you you made it through the day. Um, it's kind of a celebratory uh, signal. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, we would uh, we'd love to celebrate with you on that one. I think that that would be uh, something that would be really fun. But Manisha, thanks so much for being a guest on Behavior Grooves today. We really appreciate it. Tim and Kurt, thank you so much for for having me on. And if there's just one thing that I could share with listeners, if you are wondering or scared how close you are to me um, or how close you are to um, already being a person of Money Zen, I have a, a fun quiz. You can go to moneyzenquiz.com. Um, and it's just a, a handful of questions, but it's it actually will give you um, a, a remarkably perceptive sense of where you fall on that spectrum to being in the cult of never enough to being closer to that ideal state of financial health and emotional wealth. And so again, it's uh, moneyzenquiz.com. We'll make sure we we link to that in the show notes so people can just click and, and take that along with all the other uh, ways to, to get in touch. But thank you again. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Manisha, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our hungry ghost brains. Ooh, the hungry ghost. Now, Kurt, before we get there, if you don't mind, I would just like to remind groovers that we really enjoy hearing from you. This is a vibrant community, and we always appreciate your ideas, your reviews, and the ratings that you give Behavioral Grooves on whatever podcast app you prefer. So please take a minute to share your thoughts on social media. It goes a long way in helping other people learn about Behavioral Grooves. Okay. All right. That, well that well said, my... Tim. Well said. That's really Thank good. You. I would ditto all of what Tim said and just say, you know what? You're not too busy to go and leave a review. <laughs> You could be busier and, and write a review for us, and that would be good. So Th then, then you'd be 
too busy once <laughs> if you start writing the review. <laughs> but people need to just redefine success, and success is writing a review, a positive review for behavioral groups. <laughs> that that if, if I could do that today, that would make my day a successful day. Give give a little. Give just, a, it's yeah. about giving back, not taking, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh All right, where do you where do you want to start? Here? Well, let's do, let's start with redefining success because I think that uh, there's an underlying current um, throughout this conversation and throughout the book, and part of that, in in my perspective, right or wrong, is that we have as a culture, uh, has as a society, have really looked at success through the eyes of money, power, you know, all of uh, all of that to the detriment of some other aspects in our life. And and if we're chasing that dream, sometimes um, even when we get it, as Manisha said, it's not the dream that we thought it is a nightmare. You know, yeah. I, I also am reminded of a conversation we had last night with a colleague. Uh, that we've known for many years, who is from the Netherlands. And while certainly this idea of materialism affects most of the Western uh, societies and the Western cultures, and I think it's fair to say it's available to people all over the world, that e even in Southeast Asia or Asia in general, it's uh, it it's, certainly can be seen, materialism and the desire can be seen there. It is particularly pronounced in the United States, <laughs> right? Uh, and and I really appreciated Manisha uh, just going through that journey and recounting all of that as a first-generation immigrant and, and sort of calling attention to, it's sort of, it's like calling bullshit on this whole thing. It's like, why do we have to, why do we have to, as a culture, continue to reinforce these myths that it, it, your life is literally better with all of these things? Um, because well, and, we, we and can't it, have all those things. It's the stories that, that get told. It's the, it's those rags to riches. It's the, who is the. Who was the author in the early 19th century? That was Horatio Alger. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, that was built into the DNA of America. You know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps and and yeah. take yourself from this poor, miserable, you know, you know, element in the slums to being rich and powerful and happy. And the there's an aspect of that. There's an evolutionary aspect of of always wanting more. Yes. We can talk about that. And I think there's there is value in striving. Um, the mm -hmm. piece that I think is interesting is what are we striving for? Yeah. So this idea that success and the measure that we look for success is monetary or power or fame. I don't know if those are the right measures. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what to, to say about, about that other than just to say, uh, at this point in my life, I, I think that chasing power and fame are not worth chasing. That uh, And I haven't achieved either of them. Um, so <laughs> You are uh, a micro-influencer, Tim. <laughs> what are you talking right. about? You have fame? But un unlike Manisha, she achieved remarkable financial success and, uh, you know, uh, power and recognition. And uh, I, I think that it's it, we, we still have to have this median, this 
this base of income. We need financial security. Yeah. We need a certain amount of recognition in our lives. We we need a certain amount of power and agency so that we can feel like we're making our own decisions. Those are all important. And without those, you know, with if if you don't have that ability, if you if you're living an impoverished life. Uh, that's a that's a different experience. Well, and, and Manisha brings up one. She talked about four measures, right? Financial, caregiving, power, recognition. And and I think within caregiving, that's the one we often overlook and it's a very yeah. important one. You know, and again, it's this redefining what success is and how do we take those into pace? I would almost say that there's there's relationships, there's there's this element of social, there's this element of having meaning and creating value in the world. And again, all of those can be a shift from what this power grab money, um, you know, fame element is. And I think that is where it's difficult. Again, going back, our beliefs about this, who, you know, what is success um, becomes the status quo. And it's it's driven both by the history of the culture. We buy into it. Manisha talked about this idea that she bought into this and it's reinforced through the social pressure, right? Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I want to switch over to the busy badge. Ooh, uh, I got the busy badge. I'm I'm a busy ba- beaver. There you go. <laughs> you you are. You you literally are. Uh, the course. The question is why, and and then my underlying question is: At what point in time did everybody just start answering the question? How are you doing? With I'm really busy. <laughs> right. What? Like, isn't it? It's kind of silly, right? How are you doing? Oh, I'm really busy. It it's not actually answering the question. It isn't. But doesn't it? I've caught myself after doing this interview. I've caught myself mm, a few times now, at least, where somebody is. So, how you doing? Oh my gosh, I'm just so. Oh wait, I'm going. I'm going to say, yeah. crap. I'm I'm super busy, and I I tend to still do that because I've already started, and then I'm just committed, <laughs> and I got to follow through, right? So, but but it does come to mind where you have to think about why do we respond. They're not asking you, are you busy or, or are you bored? They're asking you, how are you doing? And so your doing <laughs> yes. is being busy, which is interesting. Um, and I find myself falling into that trap. Yeah, I, it, it's horrible. I'm on the same plane as you are uh, with regard to that, Kurt. I'm asking myself, as I'm getting asked the question, how are you doing? How am I going to answer that in a way that actually answers the question and doesn't just proclaim my busyness? Yeah. Well, and I have the, I've been doing this recently too. Oh, you know, it's the same as always. I'm just overly busy, you know? And it's like, like, it's not even like, this is a unique time. This is just the constant. It is the, you know, I say this every, you know, it's like, oh, how are you doing? Well, you know, just like last time I'm still busy, you know, it feels like I'm even busier, but you know, it's just, I'm busy and it's a constant state. It isn't a, Oh crap, I have this one project and now I'm really busy and the rest of my life is, you know, typically really, you know, relaxed and fun. No, that's not how it works. And all of this I think comes from this crazy misguided idea that being busy equals being important. Mhm. Right. So so with that Tim, I know you you did a little bit of uh looking up when did this become a thing? 
Yeah. So Anne, Anne Burnett, who is a professor of communication at North Dakota State University, did some scholarly work to try to figure out when did busyness actually become a big deal? When did it become the social norm? When did people start answering, how are you doing with I'm really busy, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Which turns out that didn't happen until the 21st century. However, she found comments that were related to busyness uh, from the 1960s and then in like the 70s and 80s started to see more of hectic and consumed and constantly on the run. The, the world was becoming way too fast. I think it was the, the late 1980s when, when Don Henley wrote songs like In a New York Minute, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, emphasizing this, this idea, uh, idea and uh, Life in the Fast Lane. You know, those are... Those are 1980s tunes, both of them, you know, Don Henley you yeah. know, songs from the Eagles. And uh, so just just for that. And so there's uh, it's been around for a while, but the answering the question, how are you doing with I'm really busy? That's a relatively recent thing in the last 10, 15 years. Well, I yeah, I mean, I think that this idea of that it's just overwhelming societal is is part of there. But it goes back, I think, um, you know, the social norm on this is this busyness and kind of really building yeah. that in. I, I, I believe it was probably there further, you know, in the past, but maybe just not as prominent. And that that's the interesting piece. And as Christina Bicchieri says, right, we all sway social norms. Uh, we all sway to social norms, but remember that your behavior is part of what is making the social norm. So yeah, I'm right. complaining about the social norm of busyness, but my own behavior falls right and makes is, that the social norm. Yeah, You're contributing to it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, it also makes me think of Lydie Klotz, yeah. you know, that maybe uh, who was our, a guest in episode 215. This idea of taking things away, maybe it's not about just adding, 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 adding. Maybe <laughs> it's about subtracting every now and then. Oh maybe it's, gosh. right, just occasionally being intentional about pulling back. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it was, it was interesting because I was talking actually with my wife and we were last night over dinner and again talking about how busy we were. Uh, and she was talking about bringing in somebody to help her and uh, to take things off of her plate. And, you know, she goes, but it's going to be costing so much. And, you know, I'm going to have to pay somebody and all that. And I go, honey, it's you would free up, you know, all of this time. But more than that, just the mind space and energy that that takes. Yeah. And so what? So what if it costs us that? I mean, let's do it because it's going to be better for us at the end of the day. And so I think, you know, that's one of those aspects that, um, you know, subtracting things out or um, offloading them and being able to just take a breath and not feel like every moment of the day has to be productive. Yeah, I, I'm pretty good at that, actually. But, um, you know, <laughs> the <laughs> <Right>. non-productivity part. <laughs> um, but I think the more that we can do that, the better our lives will be in the long run. I mean, I'm being, being prescriptive here, right? And for some people, maybe that doesn't fit. But I think for most of us, it's better if we could take some things and subtract some things out of our lives and have that breath and have that, wow. I can just sit here and drink a cup of coffee and not feel like I'm 
you know, not doing anything and, oh my gosh, what's the, the world's going to end because I'm not, you know, writing a social media post and getting all this, (laughs) whatever that crap is. (laughs) Right. And, uh, for listeners who are looking for good tips on time management, I think Ashley Willen's book, Time Smart, would be a really good one to check out. She is a, 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 quite a, uh, creative scholar, and I think she's done some good work. Uh, Willens is her name, yeah. and uh, the book is Time Smart. So yeah. that'd be. So the last thing I want to talk about, Tim, just on this is this idea of becoming a workaholic. This idea that we uh, we associate who we are with the jobs that we do. And I know yeah. you've talked about this a lot again yeah. from that industrial revolution onward. This has been more and more of kind of a, a piece. But before that, you not know, so much. It wasn't your job, wasn't who you were. And I think that's a big piece. And this idea of uh, work being part of our lives is, I think, important, but it shouldn't be the be all end all of how we think about and describe ourselves. And I go back to, you know, John Levy, who, you know, was a guest on the show and his dinners where he brings people together and you can't say your last name and you can't talk about what you do for the first hour, two hours of the night. And it's like, what what the hell do you talk about? You know, it's like you got to talk about other things, the things that are really important. So while you're making John dinner. Yeah. While you're making John dinner. That's the part I love. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, let's wrap that up then. And, um, you know, we want to thank Manisha for being a guest. It was really fascinating. It was. It really was. And again, Groovers, we always appreciate your ideas as well as your reviews and ratings that you give Behavior Grooves on whatever podcast app you prefer. Very true, Tim. I couldn't have said it better myself. Ah, yes. (laughs) And I'd like to add that if you have ideas for shows, either focused on biases and decision making or authors with great books, researchers with cool ideas or practitioners with that are doing great work and applying behavioral science insights, just give us a shout. We'd love to hear about those and to add those to uh, the people that we get to talk to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with that, we hope that you take a little break from that hedonic treadmill just this week. Maybe just take a little break and use that time to go out and find your groove. 